The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 47 of the Ascent of Board Games. We're back to talk about games on boards and stuff. I'm here with most of the usual crew. We've got Mike and Jason and Frank. Joe is not able to join us today due to stupid work things, but we have Sandy coming in as a special guest consultant, and we're always happy to have her here. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. We are getting ready to talk about the long-threatened Roll and Move episode. Really? We're going to do it? Really? We are actually live going to do it. Frank has been threatening this for a while now. Three years. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this is the episode. We're going to remind you why you don't play Roll and Move. Right? There are some good games in here. There okay, are also fine. some other games. I guess we can talk about why you should check out the modern roll and move. I mean, I think the takeaway is going to be don't write it off just because it's a roll and move game. Agreed. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time defining what a roll and move is. Basically, you move your pieces based on a roll of dice. It's got a bit of a bad rap during the golden age of board games because in a lot of cases, like games like Clue, for instance, or Cluedo for our non-American listeners, is a pretty obvious example. The meat of the game is in making suggestions and figuring out, was it in the living room or Colonel Mustard or whoever? The rolling and moving is basically a tedious way to slow down the process of getting from one room to another. And if you roll high, then you get more guesses in the course of a game. And it's just kind of an unpleasant randomizer. But thankfully, there are some games that use it sort of more smartly, and we're going to try and talk about those. And the occasional train wreck. Also, yes. Some some of them are so bad, we're just going to talk about them because they're hilarious. I think that is the real crime. Any time that this mechanic is used as a way to slow down gameplay is a failure of design. And is probably roll and move at its worst. Yeah, I don't even think that it was an intentional design choice for There was a period, particularly in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, where basically if someone was making a board game, that was how you moved. And there wasn't any thought or tactics put into it. That's just, that's how games work. That's what had always been done. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and to some degree, roll and move is a fine way to determine a value of movement. Like that fundamentally is not bad design. It's all about everything else around that design is, I think, what's really important. Yeah. Yeah, it's what you're, what you're doing after you roll and move. Yeah. And the structure of the game's like payday and everything, where you just roll and something happens. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. worse yet, you roll and nothing happens. You just move that many spaces. We've talked about one roll and move that I kind of want to bring up, which is shoots and ladders. I would argue that the reason that I don't consider shoots and ladders a bad roll and move game is also because of target audience so that one is a tool to teach kids to count so like yes there is no decision making all you're doing is rolling in a number and moving that many spaces but if you're teaching a child how to count that's all you really need 
But in Clue, it literally is just determining how often you get to take a guess. The worst case of roll and move are the ones that literally takes any decision-making out of the game. It's like you roll a die, you move to the space indicated on a die, that thing happens. There's no tactics or anything involved. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, I'm wondering about when you're teaching a child to count, how do you reconcile the being punished for this number? <laughs> Life is unfair, princess. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. So for longtime listeners, we have talked about, what was it, the morality game? Oh, God. Mike is referring to the checkered game of life from episode 25. Yeah. Isn't that what the mm-hmm. Chutes and Ladders was originally called? And just like, I think its purest intent was that like, hey... If you do bad things in life, bad things happen to you, which like... And bad things include rolling a four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bad things happen to good people, I think, is the actual lesson. I don't know. I mean, Brian, this could be just teaching children that dice are evil, and I totally agree I mean, agree yes, with that. that's true. That's true. That's a valid observation. Maybe it's just some sort of litmus test for, like, dice luck as well. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in Mansions of Happiness, which would be an early one, there would be, if you do something bad, you go back several spaces, but it would describe the action you did. Kick a kid's dog, kick a kid would move you back a lot. You go to a bar and that moves you to the drunkenness space, yeah. or you stay up too late <laughs> and that moves you to the sloth space or whatever. It's a whole thing. Uh, yes. Okay, that tangent, I'm done. Okay. That was good. good. Thank you. Glad we got that out of the way. To start with, the oldest roll-and-move type game that we know of is Backgammon. It is probably about 5,000 years old, ancient Mesopotamia and Persia, that sort of thing. Still played today. Obviously, it's been through a lot of iterations over the years. Basically, you have a set of counters on the board. You roll two dice. You either move one piece that many spaces or two pieces each by the value of one of the dice. You're trying to get them in a sort of a U-shaped pattern around this board and then bear them off, which is when they get to the end zone, you can take off pieces that roll that. Your opponent is trying to do the same thing in the opposite direction. If they have more than one piece on a point, you can't go there. If they have only one piece on a point, you can land on there and capture it, and then they have to bring it back on the board. It's not a complicated game, but there is a nice combination of strategy and luck going on. There has also been the introduction of the doubling cube, which is one of my favorite weird dice. It basically has, you know, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64 as the six sides. And at any point in the game, you can just sort of flip that to the next side up and say, I am betting this much in, you know, assuming you're gambling on it, because I think I'm in a much better position. So I'm increasing the betting value of this game. And then your opponent would be the next one to have a chance to do it. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's fun, and it has a long and respectable tradition. Good news. I have played backgammon. Oh, good. Or really, I should say, my parents had a backgammon board when we were growing up, and it was like a nice wooden one, too. Mm -hmm. Bad news, it didn't have any instructions to it, so we might not have actually (laughs) played backgammon. You played a game with backgammon pieces. You know, I took the Joe approach and created a game using the backgammon pieces that may or may not be misconstrued as backgammon. Wasn't there a thing like when you roll two dice and then you you apply one dice to one piece and another die to another piece? You can do that or you can move the same piece both. Okay. Well, actually, for doubles and backgammon, it doubled. 
So if you roll double ones, you could one piece four, four pieces right. one. Right, that's true. Mm, yeah. Okay. Split them up as you see fit. My sister's backgammon board was also boxed with something called AC Ducey, which is some other game played on a backgammon board. I remember that. I don't know anything about it, but I remember it existing. Yeah, I think it's like backgammon, but if you get a one and a two, you get to move uber fast. Ah, okay. So it's the first variant <laughs> rule yeah. set. I do like looking up backgammon. You can see like a mid 13th century painting of players playing backgammon. And oh, yeah. in this painting, the board is bigger than the players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Which like either bad art or what I really want it to be is now like the um, history of the world mm-hmm. part one, where it's like you actually are playing on a giant backgammon board. Yeah. I mean, you'll see backgammon in like Hieronymus Bosch paintings and everything yeah. that's been out there for a while. And then someone had the clever idea of just using one die. Yeah, they still use one or two dice, but this has the best name of a game ever. The New and Most Pleasant Game of the Goose, or the Royal Game of Goose, or whatever. I mean, this is your iconic roll and move, designed possibly by, I mean, it was passed around by medieval monks. Mm-hmm. mentioned by a Dominican friar, and then eventually, probably, John Wolfe published. This is pretty much your first published game. Wow. You know, about the time you get the printing press, shortly after you get boards for this and small books to explain what the pieces are, you roll and move in your objects to get to space 63. There are obstacles that send you back, like the end, the bridge, and death. <laughs> and so, really, we're going for the snakes and ladders thing. Except for gorgeous illustrated boards. Yeah, this was in the early days of mass printing, and uh, there were some of them were real pretty. I know we talked about this one in our racing games episode, but yeah. this thing swept the continent, the many variations thereof. And I mean, every roll and move game, pretty much everyone thinks about is based on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. There's not a lot you can say about it, except it's pretty. Mm-hmm. The Game of Goose was one of those games that anyone could take the basic sort of mechanics, which is roll a die and move along this one-way track, and sort of apply whatever theme they thought was appropriate. Which brings us to the next game on our list, Monopoly, (laughs) from 1935. So this is one of those games that for anyone who's kind of been in the board gaming world for a long time, Monopoly is always the one that, you know, when you were too cool to play old school games, Monopoly was always the one that you looked down your nose at. Because everyone of a certain age in the United States has memories of playing Monopoly for six hours because your sister refused to give up and you just had to keep going through all the nonsense. What I will say is that, well, I'm not going to argue that Monopoly is a good game. It's Monopoly probably, is a good game. It's probably it. not as bad as you think it is. If you play by the rules as written. Yeah. Frank, nobody does. <laughs> I know. Frank, what happens if you land on free parking? Nothing. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Brian, mm-hmm. what happens if you land on an unowned space and you don't buy it? It is immediately put up for auction. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much faster the game goes when you use those rules. You don't throw a bunch of extra money into the economy. You make sure the properties are going in there and things are moving. Also, you're allowed to trade, buy and sell properties at any time with other players. Mm -hmm. Building sets is key to speeding up the game. 
because that gives you sets and lets you start building. Yeah. And arguably, that auction component is a huge yeah. mechanic for speeding up the game. Absolutely. Because what it means is that you're not waiting to randomly land on a space and having that space be purchased. Like, Because there could be many times where you're the only person to land on a space, and then it just goes for most of the game unpurchased. But if you put it up for auction, you're then having to decide, if I don't buy this, somebody else will. Do I drive up that price so they pay more? Like, there's lots of decision that goes into that auction. And it fills up the board that much faster. Yeah. This is traditionally cited as having been designed by Charles Darrow. <laughs> but as is only appropriate to a game about economics, he basically completely ripped off an earlier design that hadn't gotten fully copyrighted. The Landlord's Game was designed by one Lizzie McGee in about 1903. Yep. A lady comes up with the design, and a man steals it. So even worse, she designed the game as a teaching aid to teach about the evils of landlord property ownership, large mm -hmm. corporations, and that kind of business ownership of properties and what they could do as they monopolized the properties and basically got blocks of properties and then drove up the rent to basically just suck up money and basically take out people's living and everything. So the fact that this became Monopoly, the massive game that became a Monopoly in its own right, mm -hmm. is Irony is not real dead. nasty slap in the face. Yeah. Well, it's funny, right? Because like, I feel like that lesson is especially lost on children because, I mean, let's face it, when we're eight, everybody was like, I'm really excited. I own all those things. And now I get to build hotels and purely a positively reinforced thing, which like, I could definitely see she's like trying to show that, Hey, that is an inherent method in which people think that we need to overcome because it is bad, but that's not how children work. So <laughs> yeah. being rich is good. Okay. It wasn't necessarily for children though. Right. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. In the time children were not treated like we think of treating children. They were treated mm -hmm. as very small adults that were not allowed to speak and were sent somewhere else. You didn't have to see or hear them. Yeah, and they should have jobs. <laughs> they often did. Are there no workhouses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's such a cultural phenomenon, at least for a certain generation in the U.S., that everybody was taught to play by somebody else. And as we have all learned to our detriment, people are not always good at teaching the rules of games. Especially yeah, when they didn't learn them themselves, they just picked up from someone else. So it's a classic example of the dangers of learning rules that way. I mean, Monopoly success really drove board games through the 60s. Sure. You know, even Parker Brothers created games like Easy Money, Finance, which were completely just Monopoly ripoffs, hoping mm -hmm. to get another Monopoly. And there are so many bad rolling moves mm -hmm. payday is mm -hmm. one that's pretty pointless yeah. what i want to know is it feels like everybody at least in my experience all left out that one important rule of when you don't buy a thing it goes up for auction and i guarantee you i was taught to play that way because my parents probably thought that was too confusing for a child of my age to understand mm-hmm I wonder if it's just, as children, the expectation is, from the previous games we've played, you move to this space and do a thing. 
because like I had the same problem. Like all the rules we just talked about that you know are the commonly missed rules. The only exception we always played free parking is doing nothing. So apparently we got that one right, but all the other ones Yay. completely wrong. <laughs> like just mm-hmm. never never yeah. did it right. So yeah, it, I feel like the expectation is I go somewhere and either I do something or nothing happens. That seems to be <laughs> built in from all the previous roll and move games I'd played as a kid. Yeah. And like I say that it came from my parents. I'm not even sure my parents are the ones that taught me how to play Monopoly. I don't actually know where I learned to play Monopoly. Yeah. Interestingly, the Landlord's game, the original one, had two sets of rules. There was an anti-monopolist set in which everyone benefited when wealth was created, period. Kami. (laughs) And a monopolist set in which the goal was to create monopolies and crush opponents, which is, of course, where the current, what we know as Monopoly is now. So, yeah, obviously, there's 8 million Monopoly variants with any theme or IP you might be interested in, and many that you are not. Half of them are in my closet and my parents' <laughs> Oh, house. my God, I'm so sorry. Why you would you need to sorry. own more than one? <laughs> uh, you know, why do I need to own a room full of board games? Hmm? Don't ask questions. Okay. Uh, no, I actually, I feel compelled to ask that question because we've got now multiple rooms full of board games. <laughs> and we don't own a copy of Monopoly. And Sandy wants to know why. <laughs> well, no, I know why. It's not like I well, went into it blind. <laughs> okay, so but We don't so own a copy of Monopoly. We have Monopoly why, Gamers Edition, which is not Monopoly. Here's why my family owned multiple copies. Because growing up, I remember we had the, uh, I say original, but we had a vanilla Monopoly mm-hmm. that was, by the time I got old enough to play it, was missing several pieces. So we bought a new one, and it was the, I want to say it was the Atlanta Centennial Olympic Edition. <laughs> and I think we bought it because we, we were like, oh, it's, you know, the Olympic Editions. That was just when I happened to really get into Monopoly. That was going on in our city. So mm-hmm. fortuitous. And then I think we owned a couple of others as the years went by. And it was just like, you know, especially being young kids, we would lose various parts of the game and it would become unplayable. So we'd replace it, but we wouldn't get rid of the old version. And so then we ended up with like, this Frankenstein. I think at one point we had six versions of it. So when I was a kid, we did own Monopoly, but we had a variant. It's clearly a ripoff, but it, I'd argue it's a superior in every way. Have any of you mm-hmm. played a game called Solar Quest? All one word? Oh, yeah. Oh, Solar man. Quest Ross. So good. So it's basically Monopoly in space. Why isn't Solar Quest on this list? Go, go, go. <laughs> Essentially, it's Monopoly in space, right? You have a little rocket ship, and I had the 80s version, so it had little plastic rocket ships in your player color. And you, you're literally moving around the solar system as you land on the different planets or the moons of those planets. You can purchase them. Just like Monopoly, unlike Monopoly, you're not messing around with hotels and houses. Your property just becomes statically more valuable the more of the moons around the planet that you own. And it just gets you enter this death spiral at a certain point where you've got someone who's like completely taken over all of Saturn. <laughs> and you land on any other planets and it's like, you know, astronomically expensive. But on top of that mechanic, they also added a thing where you have to manage your fuel. And like you even had points where you couldn't break orbit around a planet because you didn't roll enough on your dice to pass these little basically empty circles that indicated these are spaces that you'd have to exceed. If you just landed on them, you just go right back to whatever you're orbiting. So like you could just Oh, so orbit. you do, you need to get past the gravity well of a planet. Yes. So it's just yes. like playing High Frontier. 
Yeah, and <laughs> as a child, this is the first game I remember reading instructions and finding that there were optional rules, which blew my mind. <laughs> you can shoot at other ships <laughs> by using fuel. <laughs> what? That would have made Monopoly more fun. Oh, I man, mean, no <laughs> yeah. But everybody would want to play the battleship at that point because the dog <laughs> is just not. No, uh, no. <laughs> I attach the Gatlin guns to the back of the dog, <laughs> and now I'm good to go. Okay. Yeah, we're into Merchant of Venus then, which we uh, covered a few episodes ago, and pick up and deliver. So, uh, Frank, tell me about what is this Monopoly Gamers Edition? I had not even heard oh, of So, it. there is a, it's modern, it's pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. You can get it at GameStop, assuming you are mm. willing to go into one, uh, but other places. And what it is, it's like Monopoly. The objects to kill Bowser, and you've got oh, little... so it's a Mario? It's a Mario, yes, um, Mario-themed. Each character has special powers. You wander around the board, and you actually kind of, in order to get, I think in order to get a property, you have to fight. You do pay coins. There's not a lot of coins to people when you land on their property, like which is the Monopoly part. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's a little bit more about leveling up, getting allies. So it has more in common with Talisman. It's also like a 30-minute game without a lot of the property that a lot and better. auction-y stuff. And it's probably closer to the way people play Monopoly. So it's a really, really light Mario-themed roll-and-move. You have to get like so many stars before you can then take on Bowser and win the game. Huh. So you almost get a talisman thing in there. Yeah. Was this officially licensed? Absolutely. Bowser? Huh. Absolutely officially licensed, and it's got little plastic Mario Kart, I think Mario Kart-style figures. Princess Peach, Yoshi, Toad, etc. Well, there you go. Meanwhile, while they were doing a bunch of Monopoly ripoffs for Parker Brothers and everything, they did one game that actually is one of the better rolling moves. That would be in 1955 when we turn it over to Sandy for Careers. I actually like Careers. I didn't like Monopoly very much, but all of my early experiences were playing with an older sibling who was always the banker and cheated just grossly. (laughs) There is that. (laughs) So it was always a fairly unpleasant experience, but Careers is nice. Careers was designed by a sociologist who wanted to kind of convey to children that greed was not the only thing that you should judge a successful life by. That there were other things for success. He even designed a much more complicated version for adults with enlightenment and virtue and power and stuff. Careers was designed by a sociologist named James Cook Brown. He is fascinating. That was a huge wormhole that I went down. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I want to know more about him. He invented languages and wrote science fiction and just did all amazing kind of stuff. And very like you see in careers, he had all kinds of careers that went all over the place. His daughter says that he designed careers based on a nightmare he had after a night spent playing Monopoly. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Well, that's on brand. (laughs) Okay, so careers was first manufactured by Parker Brothers. I found three dates for this. Our old version has a copyright date of 1956, so I'm kind of going with there. I saw something that said 55. His daughter said 57. 55 could be right. 57 is obviously wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not really positive. Couldn't find a definitive thing. But ours is 1956, so I'm going to go with that. And, you know, it plays like two to six players or, or teams or whatever. And you've got a board that's laid out where there's a track around and then all these career options. So you build your life formula, which is happiness, money, fame. 
whatever your combination of goals is. Yeah. And you get to decide that for yourself. You just pick how you want to do it. And then you choose career options based on getting your formula. You get cards that let you immediately move to a new occupation or move to an occupation later. You get cards that allow you to manipulate your dice rolls so that you can control your dice a little more because it is a dice roller. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at the board for this, it does look like there's the traditional ring around the outside of the board Monopoly style spaces. Yeah. Yes. But then there are also these pathways that go like into the board. Yeah, right. those, are the, those are the occupations. Okay. So the original version of careers had eight of those inside tracks. One's college. Yeah. And then there are like seven politics, sports. Uranium mining. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I want Very that specific, oddly, but yes. Yeah. Well, and yeah, because uh, in the 56 version, you've got like uranium mining and going to sea. But in my 71 version, you have things like ecology. <laughs> Ooh. And astronaut. Yeah. Yeah. Going to course. Astronauts, the big fame track. Actually, sure. both are going to space and Hollywood is the big fame track too. Oh, yeah. True. But, you know, teaching, you know, there's just, they've got a kind of, you know, mix of careers that would make you happy, careers that make you money, and careers that would make you fame. And you kind of build those to get your happiness formula, your success formula. Hmm. Yeah, I remember playing this one as a kid and enjoying it a lot. It was nice that there were actually decisions involved, which was kind of a nice change compared to a lot of the other games I was playing at that age. Yeah. But also getting cards to manipulate your die rolls amazingly progressive and clever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Especially for someone who wasn't particularly a gamer, as near as I can tell. I do know that before they sold the Parker Brothers, he and his kids used to drive around to the little mom-and-pop shops in neighboring towns and sell their handmade versions. So that would nice. be a thing. <laughs> it's funny, the success formula, the fame, money, happiness, it reminds me of how you win at Tales of Arabian Nights. Is that the one? Mm-hmm. Where- yeah. Yeah, that story and destiny points. This. Yeah, yeah, that's wild. I, I didn't know that. Totally that inspired like by that. careers. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Sandy, if only they had a version of this for a young girl. <laughs> oh, oh my God. goodness. So, <laughs> you so had to go there, Mike. <laughs> hoping to make it in this world. Or live in handmade this time. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, true. <laughs> so in the 1990s, they made an abomination called Careers for Girls. <laughs> Where you can be like a super mom and you have to come up with the names for your eight kids. And it's like pretty much everything bad about things designed for little girls by men. Oh my gosh. There's exactly one thread about this game on Board Game Geek and it is entitled Most Condescending Game Ever. <laughs> yeah. I, I I just, I love that super mom is one of the careers that you can have because being a mom and having a career you know are mutually, mutually exclusive. exclusive things no, it gets better than that like, overlap. it gets better than that because i'm looking at the board to become a super mom you have to either pay three thousand dollars or have a liberal arts degree oh what <laughs> <laughs> So I can be a super mom. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Oh, oh so, I might have so, to buy this for AFK. This is going to be a oh tournament God. game. <laughs> <sighs> so among like, the things that they changed in this version, you don't get the experience cards you can use to modify your die roll. You don't get to choose your goals of happiness versus fame versus money. They're assigned to you because oh, that's no. too complicated for oh, girls. No. You know. no, 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 no. They are assigned to you. Probably by a man. Yes, (laughs) always. 
and the careers include animal doctor because veterinarian is apparently too complicated. And it's just, oh, my God. But you're not allowed to go to college. Of course not. Uh, no, no. Wait, there, wait, how there, do you get a liberal arts degree? There, yeah. there are college degrees. Oh. So I'm looking at the board. There's a college track. Mm-hmm. You could become a school teacher. You could become a rock star, a super mom, an animal doctor, or a fashion designer. That's it. No other careers for girls. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. hit, pretty much hit all of them. They nailed it. And all the essentials. Yeah. Yep. This is so and much, the horse they rode in on. This is so much more misogynistic than the original careers and the get happiness points for having a pretty secretary. Oh, God. Oh, my god. Yeah, this is literally the ultimate example of what not to do. Yeah. I just want to say that whoever designed this, shame on you. <laughs> exactly. uh-huh. Is that really the person you want to be? <laughs> At the time, that problem. Well, I mean, the career role brought him to game designer, and he figured, uh, yeah. All right, I have a question for people who know Board Game Geek better than I do. The little mm-hmm. like taglines underneath the title in the overview page, mm-hmm. who writes those? I think they're probably coming off the... the- in many cases, they're off the board itself or off the okay. advertising so, material. So, careers for Girls, the classic career goal-oriented game with a decidedly feminine touch. Oh, God. Nice. Nice. Good job, guys. Wow. <sighs> yeah. Designed by somebody... Okay, new game. New game. Designed new game. by somebody <laughs> who hated his daughters. So let's go... <laughs> let's go talk about the Operation life Fallen board. Right Life Board. So here is Careers on Steroids. This is, <laughs> it plays so very like careers. You plop down in the middle of some life event and you try to move around and make life against. The whole point of this thing is to design role-playing characters with life experience, with a background. You could be you know, very military. You could be very dilettante. Instead of like eight pads there's like 30 and this is designed for like a particular role-playing game the role-playing game is operation fallen reich which is a cthulhu-esque game with the magic and the weapons Mm -hmm. and the war and it's like world war ii okay yeah it assumes you're world war ii british Mm -hmm. so kind of roughly the same time and it tends to make characters for european world war ii or slightly pre-world war ii with a kind of semi-military background so it does make pretty nice characters for call of cthulhu and the system is a percentile base, very similar to Call of Cthulhu. So it's easy enough to adapt those characters. Huh. Uh, I'm confused. At no point have you talked about the spinner in the middle of the board game. <laughs> There's a spinner? Not that, that determines life. how far you get <laughs> to no, move. Life board, not the game of life, which is basically... Sorry, I had to. Yeah. Which is yeah. basically a roll and move too. Yes. I'm still a little surprised we didn't talk about Parcheesi at all because of all the... Oh, yes, I was talking about that when we were doing backgammon, yeah. That, uh, That's another one we talked about in the race games episode. Oh, okay. But, uh, At least yeah, you talked but, about it once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, it's but one of the oldies. my favorite Portuguese variant is Hex and Tans. Oh, okay. Why? <laughs> what makes it special? Hex and Tans is lined Parcheesi. You don't know which pieces are yours, and you have to... <laughs> Unless you can keep up with them, you can't see what color the pieces are. So you've got pieces are only marked on the bottom. So oh, you, dear. you've got your little pieces that you move out onto the thing, and then you you know move around the board like you do and take them back, just like Parcheesi, except that you have to keep track of which ones of yours without being able to see which color they are. Oh dear! Oh man! <laughs> it's really fun to play with Frank because he always oh. like banks everybody else's pieces. <laughs> Excellent. 
Yeah, there's that game. Ugh. <laughs> so, Million and Spiel, 1982 by Robinsberger. I don't think we have a designer for this one. Nope, we don't have a designer for this one. It's a kind of a weird roll and move, more of a betting game with a board that looks like a giant roulette wheel and only one pawn. And in the game, you want to, as the name Million and Spiel describes, you want to make a million dollars. In fact, there is a little cardboard $1 million card that comes with the game, as well as denominations of money, one, 10, 100, every 10 all the way up to a million. So you get the lovely $100,000 bills and the the $10,000 and $1,000 bills. You start with $5. (laughs) Is this how I traded a paperclip for a Porsche? Pretty much. Yes, yes, totally. (laughs) Step number six will shock you. Jesus. (laughs) And you also start with an income. So when you go around the board, when the pawn goes around the board once completely, everyone gets five more dollars. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Sounds like a long game. (laughs) In theory, but not really. A lot of the game consists of empty spaces where nothing happens. So what happens on a turn is one player will roll the die. Everyone then bets on the outcome of what the pawn lands on. And the first spaces that you concern are, you know, everyone loses their money, so the bets all go away. But the first set of spaces is a whole block of ones where everyone basically doubles their bet and, you know, one-to-one odds. But then, you know, next quarter of the board is 10 to 1 odds. So if the pawn lands on that space, everyone gets 10 times what they bet. Then there is a 100 to 1 section where everyone gets 100 to 1 of what they bet. And then in between those, there is a set of spaces where everyone loses all the money they did not bet. (laughs) And the pawn goes through this cycle all the time, passing these groups of four spaces. And it's a pretty big board. So you're generally going to get a few rolls landing in each cycle, maybe or maybe not. And that's actually the bulk of the game. So everyone bets. And then the player who's got the dice rolls. First of all, they get to bet last. But they also roll. And their only power is they can look at the first roll and go, nah, and pick up the dice and roll again. (laughs) So they are slightly induced to bet against the crowd (laughs) and roll to try to screw them. But... That's it. And so the game goes in cycles. You know, you get some money, money, money. You try to avoid losing. You may end up losing half your money through the section where, you know, you lose all the money you didn't bet. And then you get to, and whatever you have can go into the 101 section, 101 section, till you get a ton of money. And it's usually three or four cycles around the board. You can also buy upgrades that give you 50 or 500 income every time the pawn goes around. And that's the game. That's uh, surprisingly clever and extremely dramatic. <laughs> Since you want to, you know, put all your money on a 101 bet and watch it just miss. Yeah. That seems... The cycle means that you kind of have to plan ahead, mm-hmm. especially for dealing with that section with where you lose all the money you didn't bet, where you often want to, you know, just split your pot in half and soak it. Oh, you're also never allowed to make change. And if you get 10 of any one denomination, you have to turn it in. You have to. Okay. You have to. So you're always stripped on what kind of coins and things you have to bet. And there's like, because like I said, no change. Weird. It's a surprisingly clever, relatively simple game. And the rules create something that's maddening, frustrating, and surprisingly fun. Important is that one pawn. Mm -hmm. So everyone plays on that. Yeah. I don't know. It's one of those things that when I hear it described, I'm not sure how it can work. 
I'm sure it does, but it just, it's like when I first heard somebody describe QE to me, which is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the game in which you can pay literally any amount of money you can name for a thing. I do yeah. enjoy QE. It's just like, yeah. I, how does that even work? But it does. I just need to experience it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would actually be really amazed because, you know, hearing it, it doesn't sound that interesting, but it's <laughs> such a blast. Huh. And, you know, and I've never seen anybody who didn't enjoy that. We used to take it to the cons and stuff, and then everybody would get so excited. Huh. I might have to try that sometime. Yeah, totally. It looks boring, and, and you know, it's got that 70s muted gold and green, and ugh. Well. But yeah, it's a great game. It's not that ugly. <laughs> there are many uglier games, yeah. for sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it just doesn't look exciting, but it mm -hmm. is kind of reminiscent of, a, like, a roulette wheel. Well, shall we talk about a game that was... Definitely not made by a group of 10-year-olds in their basement coming up with a board game. <laughs> sure. <laughs> our next game on our list is Talisman, which is a 1983 game. Robert Harris is the designer. Oh, yeah. This is the game that I think of when I think of Mechanics Bloat. But let me see if I can even remember the original basic game. In this game, you are a fantasy adventurers, and you are assigned a class at the beginning of the game. Those classes have unique abilities, as well as a place to keep their goods and followers. They have a strength and craft skill. They also have gold and lives. You start off on a three-tiered Monopoly-style ring board game. So you've got your outer tier, which is along the board edge, which is very reminiscent of Monopoly. At some point, you can move to the inner ring, and then you've got the final ring in the center of the board game. As you do, things will get progressively stronger and harder and more valuable. But in essence, you're rolling two dice and deciding whether or not you want to go clock or rolling two. I think it's just one die. Okay. And deciding whether or not you're going uh, Wittershins or not Wittershins. Counter Wittershins. Counter Wittershins. <laughs> yeah, that's actually the one thing that I really like about Talisman is, you know, like we've said, a lot of times roll and move is just you roll and that's what you get and there's no choice involved. Just the simple choice of do I go this way or that way, even though it's a big circle, makes a surprising amount of difference and makes you feel like you're actually making meaningful choices. Yeah. As you go, you're going to be discovering monsters and fabulous treasures. You got to fight them or overcome them in some way. The game is fine. <laughs> it's an experience. The problem I have when I think about Talisman is that there's like... 18 expansions at this point, like extra boards, there's tons of different characters. There is some variety here. which All of which are absolutely necessary. Normally isn't a bad thing, but God, when I sit down to think about playing Talisman, I'm just like, nope. <laughs> there is, however, a good digital implementation of it. So, you know, go check that out. I will say, I super dig the original artwork of this game. It's got that classic Dungeons & Dragons, like, hand-drawn, just really dorky-looking artwork. I love it's it. old-school games so workshop much. art, man. It's classic. Yes. It's so good. 
And then you got the Fantasy Flight stuff, which is, while a lot more detailed and probably better art, it just lacks the... It's not as much fun. Yeah, yeah, it lacks the imagination, the creativity, and just the... I don't know, there's just something about that old artwork that I super dig. Yeah, we can talk about the demise of Games Workshop and why we loved Classic Games Workshop at some point. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. Fantasy Flight also ironically, uh, seeing as how Talisman was originally a Games Workshop game, Fantasy Flight, ironically, rebranded Talisman into the Games Workshop property of 40k with Relic, the board game. Yeah. And Relic did a few things different. I think the inner ring was replaced by like a series of challenges that if you failed even once, you got booted back out. I think that was original to Relic. That was true. The, the original, original Talisman was that one. It too, did that yeah. as well. Okay. I think you got separate decks on the inner ring, but you also got some tiered decks that got harder over time as opposed to, oh, look, it's an ancient red dragon on your first draw and he kills you and you just saw. Yeah. Relic is probably my preferred gaming experience when playing Talisman. Oh, yeah. It also doesn't have a ton of expansions. I yeah, it's just got the two. It's got one. It's, no, it's got two. No, two. Halls of Terra and uh, some... I don't remember the other one. But Talisman was a game that, once upon a time, I was really into. Nemesis, that's the other one. Oh, yeah. For the time, it was sort of like... I remember it was originally described to me as Fantasy Monopoly, which is, <laughs> Not is a good true way to sell only in the person. very <laughs> broadest sense. I can see it. I but yeah, it. it's sort of like it is a board game that had fantasy role-playing type stuff in it, which there was not a lot of at the time. And it still had the roll and move around the board. And it was fun at the time. I feel like there are a lot better uses of my gaming time now. But it was fun at the time. Yep. And yeah, this kind of, you know, mid to late 80s was a really interesting time for board games. Especially this kind of, what you got was a bunch of uh, D&D fantasy and wargaming companies kind of moving into mass market. So they were being stocked in Toys R Us. And you got a lot of these more gamer companies producing lighter fantasy and lighter family games. And some of those are pretty interesting and odd. And there's some role and move mechanics in there because I guess the concept that a family game should have role and move mechanics is a thing. And you'll see that this kind of time period produces a lot of the good and interesting ones. And Talisman obviously led that. My next game, if I can go on, is Elixir. This is a TSR and bought my copy at Toys R Us. It's from 1987 and designed by Nick Sewell, who did a lot of these kind of games. He's a Brit, and British also have a lot of weird roll-and-move <laughs> fantasy games. So Elixir, you've got a town, you're a basically herbalist, potion, wizard dude, and you wander around town, pick up ingredients and make potions. And your object is to make the Elixir of Life, which is in three parts. And there are also some other potions that will give you permanent powers. And you basically, in order to make a potion, you have these nine cards that represent the three parts of the Elixir Life, as well as the other potions. These are shuffled and placed in a three by three grid. And combinations of a gem and an herb will make this specific thing kind of like the game alchemist mm -hmm. you can do some research to look at a card to see you know what kind of thing you're going to brew and what happens is the first to brew it suddenly knows that oh this is how you make that and your object's to brew the three parts of the elixir of life and basically that's it you go to shops 
which are very, they're only a couple spaces apart. So which shop you're going is almost a more of a pick up and deliver path planning where you will need to go, okay, I can pick up this and that'll help me make this, you know, I might try to make part of this. The weird part and the talismany part is that if you're stuck in the street, you get an encounter, which can be good or bad and meet strangers in the street to get an event card. So your turn's not completely worthless. You still get something happen to you. That's nice. Yeah. And so it's actually a really nice kind of clever, the game moves. It's aimed a little young, but you know, it's talismany. I'm looking at the art here, Frank, and the art's great. I love the the style of the art. It's classic. I know. But like the standees for your wizard looks like someone's holding him up at gunpoint. (laughs) His eyes are fucking out and he's got his hands out in front of him like, please don't shoot me. That's a really odd choice. (laughs) Uh, Did he tell you about the part where they're on the street? (laughs) <laughs> yeah so you may just get the mugger <laughs> yeah totally and yo yeah there's definitely oh yeah i'm being mugged Aye. 1987 we've also got dinosaurs of the lost world since we did tsr let's talk about avalon hill and one of their entries into this kind of lighter is game. avalon hill doing a roll and move <laughs> they did quite a few roll and moves mm. this one though is actually good designed by mick <laughs> oh really mick designed this wow okay so you can tell we've researched all this stuff well in advance. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, I know Mick. Um, okay. <laughs> I didn't know he was now Avalon Hill designer. Oh, okay. Okay. But so Dinosaurs of the Lost World is a lot like careers <laughs> in some ways. But with dinosaurs. With dinosaurs. <laughs> with dinosaurs <laughs> well, how can, <laughs> can a dinosaur be a super mom? That's the real question. <laughs> well, no, because this, this is careers for boys. It's dinosaurs. Oh, right. <laughs> right exactly. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, totally. Right. These dinosaurs get to go into space. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. No, it's it's very Lost World kind of, you know, dinosaurs on a plateau. And this one, you have basically a game board where the dinosaurs exist. You've got an outer track. Basically, what happens is you wander around the board looking for various adventure sites. And each of those adventure sites comes with like kind of a career's inner track where you're moving two dice on the outer board. And that outer board lets you move dinosaurs around, mess with other people, and basically have kind of events where you mess with things. But then once you go to the inner track, you go to this literally these separate sheets that are comic book panel events where you roll a single die and move so many panels on the comic, getting whatever rewards or losses, which are very, very like careers and your objects to get victory points which is a step back from careers (laughs) from finding things in these events but also you have to track a lot of items certain items are only used inside certain events so you have to track your tool and what kind of usage there is a combat system so creatures can attack you because you know it would have to they even have experience cards, which I think are exactly what they called them in careers as far yeah, as doing totally. things. It's really interesting because these separate adventures are set up very much like comics. Like when I was first looking at them, I thought they were a comic. They are really. Well, kind of. Yeah. They don't really so have a story. It's interesting because like some of them very easily could have just been a deck of cards that's like, ugh, marsh gas, mm-hmm. pay one experience card for your next move. Yeah. But then like they're categorized by the type of dinosaur that you're interacting with. Yeah. So like there's one that's uh, the pterodactyl adventures, like. The first panel is, you spot a pterodactyl. The second t- paragraph is, you run into a cave to get to the rookery. I I kind of wish 
the experiences were either, you know, you go from the game board to the separate comic and work your way through that comic panel right, by that, panel. That is, yeah, you don't work it through panel by panel. You roll a single die and you kind of hop and skip through the panel. Yeah, I, I kind of wish it wasn't that because it I know. <laughs> feels like it makes a lot less sense that way. Yeah. And yeah, you could, you have experience cards, you have various events, some of which can be saved for tools. And it's a surprisingly cute game that uh, just as, I mean, obviously fell off the radar because no one's ever heard of it. <laughs> I love the cover because it's very much, you know, it looks like a movie that would be presented in Cinemascope. You know, oh, like yeah. your, your 1960s <laughs> dinosaurs of the lost world kind of thing. It's got that vibe. Yeah, totally. Oh, no. I just finished the pterodactyl adventure, and one of the last panels is the entire colony is aroused. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to give you any more context than that, but... Uh, but there, it's a comic strip, so there is an illustration. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a bunch of pterodactyls, that's all. They're definitely aroused, I guess. Hi. Uh, yeah. All right. So tell us about some more obscure things. Oh, now we have Sandy to tell us about another obscure thing. This is the yeah. Frank and Sandy portion of the show. <laughs> more Avalon Hill. Oh, we're going to talk more Avalon Hill? Okay. Yep. I'm going to tell you about an Avalon Hill game called Past Lives, which has a board you start like on the outside and spiral to the center. So we've got our spiraling board. You are moving back in time. Okay, this was in 1988, designed by Brad Greeley. Glenn Benest and Alan Sheeran. It took three people. <laughs> well, you know, they, they talk about like in the rule book and stuff, how they wanted to teach people about karma and the concept of having past lives and all of this stuff. And while that's really interesting, their mechanic is to go through history and loot all its treasures. Now, <laughs> sure, makes perfect sense. So that the person who has the most money has the best past life, and that's the whole. Ah. Right. The, the whole point is is that you start at scum of the earth and you <laughs> circle in on the board and trying to get to the great and the saintly. There are four karmic levels. So you have scum of the earth, vulgar and commonplace, heroes and heroines, and then the great and the saintly. And at the end of the game, you have this book. And based on how much you have acquired, so they're having a little trouble with their greed thing, because wealth accumulation doesn't seem like a way to teach karma, <laughs> you get a paragraph in the book that tells you who you were in your past life. So you can be the rat that started the plague. The flea, I think it's the flea, the flea on the rat that started the Great Plague. Yeah, yeah, you were the flea that started the Black Plague. <laughs> well, now I feel kind of bad. <laughs> you should have made more money. <laughs> that's like the lowest of the low, right? Right, but you know, you go through. So you know, that's your scum of the earth, and then you can get into say, oh, Mother of Alexandria, or um, Amy Simple McPherson. She is in. The vulgar mm -hmm. and commonplace. Yeah, okay. I could see that. So I don't have any context of this, but one of the cards is just Hitler invades Poland, lose one treasure. <laughs> <laughs> that is the worst thing that happened when Hitler invaded Poland, for sure. What's the treasure? It was treasure. I like how one of the treasures is Marie Antoinette's head, so you're just carrying that around, apparently. <laughs> 
Because carrying around Marie Antoinette's head is a sign of good karma. <laughs> <laughs> well, so heroes and heroines, they included Sappho, so there's one. All right. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and Abraham Lincoln is in The Great and the Saintly. Just kind of thumbing through the book. But while it is not a fabulous game, pretty much something happens every time you roll the dice. They are good and bad. <laughs> they can be very bad, you know, because Hitler can invade Poland. But mm. um, the whole point seems to be to get to this place where you get to find out who you were in your past life. And that's that part's kind of fun, although the game does run on a bit long. Yeah, there's an awful lot of spaces on that board. I know. Yeah, and if you roll doubles, you can opt to go backwards so that you can try to collect more treasures. Huh. That is definitely a game. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> Except for the end. Yeah. We've actually had an amazing amount of fun playing it, even though it's yeah, pretty Yeah, it really game. does have to be played with a bunch of people who can play tongue-in-cheek. Because, you know, there are and, a lot of games. Probably drunk. some alcohol, yeah. Yeah, alcohol yeah. helps. But I know some people, I've played games with some people who even these games that are really silly, they want to take them very seriously. No, 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 that's not the point. <laughs> You've got to be really tongue-in-cheek about it. Yeah. So it definitely feels like there's a bring-your-own-fun sort of aspect to this game. But Frank, I think the reason it took three people is because most of these cards look like just three people sitting around a table doing, like, what-if scenarios. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Whoa. I just, like, sorry, I just ran into another treasure. <laughs> one of them is being a snake handler finally pays off when Cleopatra sends for you. It's just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Fascinating. Where did that come from? All right, so I found another treasure I have to bring to everyone's attention. Catherine the Great's horse. Oh man. All right, moving on. <laughs> Just like what the look, Van Gogh's ear? Look, man, they got a lot of cards to get through. Richard the third running phone. low on ideas. Huh. <laughs> Clearly, we all need a break after that one. So come back and join us for part two of Roll and Move Games next month. Stay safe out there, folks. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm going to edit that out so it doesn't sound like I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs>